Namaste and welcome to HAF's podcast, That's So Hindu. I'm Sheetal Shah, and today I'm chatting with Shivali Pummer, who is the youngest and only artist to ever be signed by Sony Music BMG for Bhajans. She has released two devotional albums, The Bhajan Project and Urban Temple, which reached number one on the iTunes World Chart. Shivali was also nominated for two Global Indian Music Awards at the age of 23 and was listed as the top 25 under 25 South Asian artists in England. Shivali is also a writer and motivational speaker. Today, we're talking about her journey from the finance world to bhajans, her passion for Kathak dance, and the Hindu roots of yoga. Well, thank you, Shivali, for joining me here today on our podcast, That's So Hindu. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. Um, you know, we're kind of just getting in touch and and just learning a little bit about each other. Uh, you know, I ran across you on Instagram where you have quite a following. And, um, you know, I thought a lot of what you're doing in terms of modernizing bhajans um, would really resonate well with a lot of folks in the Hindu American community. So I'm hoping that after this podcast and after folks listen to you, um, they'll be, you know, running to hear more of your singing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Always love the help. (laughs) Well, since a lot of our listeners don't know much about your background, and even I don't know all of your background, I'd love to hear just a little bit about your journey. You know, how does somebody who was in finance end up singing, you know, modernized versions of pageants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was a very interesting journey. And I think really it started from when I was very young. Um, I was, I was apparently reciting shulks from the Gita at the age of three. I had a passion for it. Um, I also came from a family where I was raised by my great grandmother um, and my great aunts who with a lot of enthusiasm would be shouting dunes and mantras at me. And I would uh, be jumping around and, um, and, uh, and acting very much like a Hindu preacher um, at the age of four and five. And, and um, then after, at the age of 15, 16, I decided that uh, something needed to be done to make bhajans more accessible. Uh, the bhajan format that existed at the time was mainly a harmonium Uh, usually a male singer over the age of 50. (laughs) And um, it was very, very simple in its production. And whilst I found it very soothing and I connected with it, with Anujulotaji, Jagjit Singhji, you know, all the famous bhajan singers, unless you were spiritually or religiously inclined, you would not be able to identify with that music. So my point was, was that if God is as we in all religions believe that God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, then if you can get the feeling and emotion of a bhajan to somebody who isn't necessarily a believer or who doesn't necessarily um, think to listen to bhajans, but still will consume the music because of the production, then you basically have another person involved in consciousness or a higher level of consciousness. 
And so that's when I uh, decided to just experiment with my my Rocky brother who produced my albums and just have us remake the Hanuman Chalisa. I think the Hanuman Chalisa was the first one we remade. And then uh, one called, a uh, version called Jagme Sundar Hai Donam. And I just tested it out on family and friends in the UK. And, and people were like, this is really good. Um, we've never heard anything like this. And... Um, and so then I just left it. I, you know, I never had any intention of becoming a singer. I did not have any, any intention of going down that path. As you mentioned, I went into finance. I, I joined Goldman when I was really young, um, after my internship and trading and then became an equity directives broker. And, and I just happened to be in India at the right time. I got signed to Sony Music and I got signed because I convinced them that there was a product a niche product that I had created that did not exist in the market. And it was urban um, modernized budgets and given 80% of the India of India's population listen to religious music. Why were we not offering God a full array of production and giving, you know, giving pageants the very best, the way that we do for Bollywood and the way that we do in pop music. And how come you don't do that for pageants? I just, really understand it so that's where the journey uh so the journey began a long time ago and that's when it sort of um, came to fruition uh it's funny that you mentioned the hanuman chalisa because i think that's the clip that you actually shared with the haf handle at instagram and uh obviously the hanuman chalisa has a special place in so many hearts but i have a five-year-old son and it is the one pudgeon that he will listen to and uh you know it's like um he, I, I should actually have him listen to your version because he likes to more modernized version of it. And so I'll be playing other pageants in the morning and then he'll be like, mom, can you play the Hanuman song, please? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you're right. I think that that's the main appeal. A lot of kids have learned the Hanuman Chalisa off my version, or they've learned the Gayatri Mantra off my version, the Ganesh Mantra. Um, it's very, very child friendly. But it, it isn't just for children. So I've heard adults who are running to my music or I've heard, um, you know, women who, whose babies only seem to breastfeed to my music or people who go into surgery and ask for the budget project to be played on in the background. Um, and so I think it speaks to people as budgets do. It speaks to everybody in a very personalized way. But I think this especially attracts um, the youth, um, the millennials, Jen, I'm not a millennial. I think I might be, but whatever, the older one. <laughs> and, um, you know, it speaks to everybody from the age of three to, you know, like people in their sixties. Yeah. I, I mean, it's so important and it's such an important way of, uh, kind of captivating youth because one of the issues that we're seeing here in America, and I don't know if it's the same case over in, in the UK, is that something like temple membership, for example, that's declining amongst the youth because oftentimes if there's not somebody there who can explain to them what's going on, they can't relate to it. And so then it kind of becomes like, why am I doing this? Or you're being forced to do this. And so it's so important to take as many aspects of, of, you know, Hinduism rituals, chanting and modernize it in a way that our that kids can relate to. Exactly. And, um, and I think, you know, that's the responsibility of every 
Hindu individual um, to, to modernize it for their own family and uh, tap into that because of course you can join organizations you know I was part of Chinmaya Mission which is where I did all my Vedanta um, studying um, but you know you have Chinmaya Mission you have Swami Narayan who have their own mandirs and you have the Hare Krishnas who have their own mandirs but as as a Hindu you shouldn't have to belong to an organization to be able to feel connected right you should be able to access that understanding or that level of um of intellect um of, of the intellectual side of hinduism in a way that doesn't confine you to a group um and and i think that's what the youth find appealing they don't necessarily want to feel like they're being brainwashed or they don't want to feel like they're being forced or ingrained with information and do's and don'ts they want to feel like they have freedom and flexibility, but they're also um, able to understand what's happening when they go go to a mandir. Yeah, that's that is a really important point. I actually didn't grow up in any particular sampradaya. My parents sort of sometimes we went to you know Swaminarayan, and sometimes we went to a different temple, and you know we yeah. I learned the Gita with them, but we never you know I wasn't part of Chinmaya Mission, although my son is is now doing Chinmaya Mission. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> big fan of it. So good. Yeah. So I mean, you know, it, it's for for those of us though. Um, you know, my husband is not as spiritually inclined or not as interested in Hinduism as say I am. So something like a Chinmaya mission really helps to support it. And then being able to in the morning playing pudgeons sort of just brings it home a little bit every day. So he gets, you know, my son gets just a little bit every day. And I think, you know, at some point they go through their teenage years and that's a whole different story, but hopefully, you know, after they, they pass that, that phase, they'll come back to it and they'll have something to relate to. So all very, all very important points. So I want to go back just a little bit in your journey. You mentioned that you were in India at the right time and you talked to Sony about the Pajan project. What was, you know, I, you kind of glossed over that. So I want to talk a little bit more about how exactly that happened. You know, did, did they approach you? Did you think, Hey, I should, I should pitch to them. What, what was that like? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously when you, the first place you sit on in your life outside of school is like a Goldman trading desk you learn very quickly how to hold your own how to take advantage how to pitch your stock um, and how to be extremely bold and gutsy and uh, I I did not they did not know me I did not know them Um, I happened to be interviewing with a news company at the time in Bombay. And I asked them if they knew anybody in the music industry. And they said, well, obviously we have them on a Rolodex, but we haven't heard your music and we can't necessarily like pitch you to them. And I said, that that's fine. I'm going to pick the top three labels and I'll in India and out of those three, I'll pick one that I think is doing the best work. And um, if you can call the CEO, um, at the time he was called Sridhar Subramaniam. He's now president of all of Asia um, and Australia. Um, and he now lives in New York. He's doing a fabulous job. And um, I will pitch my idea to him. And, and I did. And he said to me, do you have a demo? I said, yeah. He goes, okay, you've got a meeting. 
I did not have a demo. I uh, had to call, you know, when you have those ISD phones or whatever they oh, were yeah, called. Yeah, yeah. It was like yes. back in the day, right? So I had to go there, call my Rocky brother in London, say to him, hey, do you have any of the songs we made? And he goes, are you talking about the ones we made when you were, when we were like 15, 16? I said, yes, I have a meeting with Sony Music tomorrow and I need to play it to them. And he's like, you do realize these were made in my bedroom and on an eight track system, which might not mean much to you, but it's like really old school. Um, He's like, you cannot play this to them. And I said, well, that's what I'm going to have to do. So email it to me so I can burn it onto a CD. This is how far back we're going, right? So I'm burning this slowly onto a CD, taking the CD to my Sony Music meeting. They listened to it. They were like singing, very bad, very, very bad. (laughs) Production, very bad. Very, very bad. I was like, yes, but the idea, the idea is genius, right? And they were like, hmm, we'll think about it. <laughs> they were not impressed. But they had faith in the idea. And I had to retrain. I had to work a lot on my vocals. Because as I said, I wasn't necessarily a natural um, natural Beyonce at all. Um, and uh, my Rocky brother worked on the production, we reproduced the entire album. And if you see the Budget Project versus Urban Temple, which is my second album, you can tell a big difference in terms of production and voice. It, it's, it's so, the second album is a lot more um, well-made, but the Budget Project just touched people's hearts because it was the first. It was the CD that everybody bought in the shops. It was the one that had posters everywhere, the one that, you know, was up for two Global Indian Music Awards. It was the one that um, people were like, gosh, this UK, British, Indian, good you girl has decided to do this. And um, so it created a wave at the time, which was which was nice before social media existed. <laughs> That's an incredible story. So you said you had to go back and you had to retrain your voice. Did you have to go take lessons? Did you stay on in India to take lessons or did you come back to the UK? Yes, um, they set me up with a singer, um, a great, great singing coach, um, teacher in, in Bombay. And... Um, I would travel from South Mumbai all the way to Gandhi Valley uh, on, on the train because I, I was too sick to, 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 tra- to travel by car. And um, it, was, it was tough. It was really tough because I'm an English vocal um, singer. I'm not actually a Hindustani vocal. So, so I will never sound like Shreya Ghoshal in my entire in this lifetime or the next five. <laughs> so, but I, um, I sing with sincerity and I think, I think that's probably what people pick up on more than excellence singing skills. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked a little bit about your great grandmother and your great aunt. Um, yeah. there, were, were they your primary sources of inspiration? Have there been other sources of inspiration that have come into your lives that, that has made you want to do this and continue doing this? Um, yeah. So I, I think the inspiration was very subtle. Um, my great grandmother, so my mother's mother's mother, um, she, she was a big believer in the Hanuman Chalisa and she must have done 
insane numbers of Hanuman Chalisa when, when I was in my mother's uh, stomach. And, you know, my mother um, does two hours, you know, she does mala every morning. She's very spiritually inclined. You know, my family, my immediate family are not, are not, um, I would say ritualistic. We're not the puja doing family, but we are the faithful family. And we do believe in personal prayer. And I think there was a lot of personal prayer done around me and that vibration carried. And when I was born, um, there were a lot of gurus uh, who were very close to our family who held me when I was when I was a baby. So I think a lot of just that positivity um, was infused into me. And then it, it, it was really honestly a personal interest and a personal journey. And I think it has to be personal because yes, you can be influenced by people, but it's not your own, right? Influences come and go. And, and unless you feel something is your own very nature um, in Sanskrit, they call it your swabhav. Um, it, it's, it's the way you are naturally inclined and what you naturally lean towards um, that was my calling, and so it, it flowed naturally. Uh, that's interesting that you mentioned um, that you heard the Hanuman Chalisa. They were singing it when your mother was pregnant with you. Uh, you know, I used to play pungeons all the time <laughs> when I was pregnant as well. But you know, that also speaks to a really interesting point. I mean, Hinduism has always said it, and you know, I think science also corroborates it now. Is that you know, a growing child in the womb can hear. Uh, what is being said and done around them. I mean, we have that really awesome example in the Mahabharata, right, where Arjun is talking to Subhadra and explaining the chakra view, and she's pregnant with Abhimanyu, and, you know, he talks to her about how you get in and she's listening and then she falls asleep when he's explaining how you get out. And so the kid only, only heard part of it, not the other part. Right. So, I mean, these yeah. sorts of things, it's, it's amazing how you can bring those into the modern world. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and also the idea of, of, um, energy carrying itself, you know, like quantum physics looks into, into that and, um, you know, into the movement of sort of atoms and, and particles behaving towards one another in a way um, that is different when they're observed versus when they're not observed, right? And, and, and trying to explain that with the concept of, of consciousness as we do it in Hindu philosophy. And everything you, you say and you think and you feel um, is is a message and and you feel that and i think in life in all sorts of instances you know somebody will be remembering you and they'll call you and you think i was just thinking about you or you know i was just i just wanted it i'm wondering how you were or i knew you were pregnant i just felt it and all these things we're all interconnected uh, which is really lovely yeah absolutely i mean i think you're that sort of that sort of feeling um you know, is starting to become a little bit more popular in terms of that, that understanding with kind of the growth of, say, yoga, for example, um, and these ideas of mindfulness and, and, you know, whatever Western terminology they've put to basically mm -hmm. these ideas of, of yoga and pranayama and meditation, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely there. And when you kind of tap into it, um, really mm -hmm. amazing. Um, so... I realize that you are also trained as a dancer. Is that correct? 
Yes, Kathak dancer. Yeah, I have a yeah diploma in, in Kathak. Okay, so how does that fit in? I mean, you know, it's obviously still within within the the arts. How does it fit into your day to day and into you know your life? Yeah, I I am um, I'm actually training right now for for my Rang Manch Pravesh, which is a solo Kathak show that you do. Um, it's it's similar to Bharatnatyam dancers who do an Arangetram, but Arangetrams tend to be done when Bharatnatyam dancers are pretty young. Um, uh, Rang Manch Pravesh take, takes time. <laughs> you have to be a very seasoned Kathak dancer and. Um, I studied at the Bharti Vidya Bhavan uh, in the UK, uh, which is obviously the Indian Institute of Cultural um, Arts. And it's a journey of discipline. It's a journey of uh, surrender, of love, of, of meditation, because dance enables you to be completely present in the moment. It also enables you to connect your mind and your body into a unified uh, flow, right? Um, and it, there's a lot of spirituality in, in, in dance. Uh, you know, you, you, you go back to Shankar Bhagwan and him doing, you know, the Tandav dance. And uh, you go back to uh, Krishna Bhagwan dancing on the serpent when, you know, when he kills the serpent. And the sound that he makes is supposed to be Tate, which is what leads us to Tate, Tate, which is in, in Kathak. And um, obviously Kathak is, is telling a story. So in the same way, in music, I tell I sing a story of devotion in Kathak. I dance the story of devotion and both are, are interlinked in, in my life. I, I would say, and actually anybody you meet in my life would say I'm a much better dancer than I am a singer, um, despite being known as a singer and not as a dancer. <laughs> um, but dance has always been <clears throat> very private to me. It's my greatest, greatest joy in life. Uh, and and it's you know Kathak is based on the Natya Shastras and um, there is there is enlightenment to be found through the arts should you want to 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 go in a in a different route towards enlightenment. Oh, that's that's incredible! A lot of what you were saying about Kathak uh, and and just dance in general resonates a lot with me. Not because I can dance at all. Um, <laughs> I have practiced uh, Ashtanga yoga for about a decade now, um, and some of the things that you point out—discipline—it <laughs> requires a lot of discipline, but it is the connection of the mind and the body and being present, um, absolutely present. Uh, and doing it day in and day out every day, even when you don't want to do it, even when, you know, it's just such a struggle. Um, but it does, it teaches you something, you know, I want to kind of talk about what's next for you. Um, where do you see, you know, the, the budget project going where, you know, are, is, is there more coming out or do you see yourself kind of venturing out into something else? What's, what's next? Yeah, so we do have a third album in production, um, which would be called The Pageant Project 2. Um, so we have Pageant Project, then we had Urban Temple. And so this would be uh, sort of a continuation of the first album in terms of sound and feel. The pandemic and COVID in India has just 
completely delayed that, um, which is a real shame. It's, it's a beautiful album. Uh, so hoping to release that at some point. Um, other than that, I've been um, doing a lot of public speaking. I do, I teach a lot of workshops and Hindu philosophy. Um, you know, I, I, of course, love the Western take on yoga, mindfulness, as they call it, you know, um, meditation and, and how they have embraced these, um, this Eastern philosophy of ours. However, I do think it's nice if we preserve some of the integrity of our philosophy, um, pronunciation, uh, concepts, um, you know, taking it back to its roots um, and where it came from. Not because I want us to feel a sense of ownership, but Hindus have a lot to be proud of. And we, we can teach and we can preach as well as any white person talking about, you know, yoga. Right? Like we can do it justice as well. And we've come from it and we should be very proud of it. And, and you know, I, I feel, find it rather sad that. I've seen people in the Western world really take to a lot of our concepts and then a lot of young Hindus be like, oh, that's, that's hippie stuff or that's, oh, that's what all like the trend, the new trendy people are doing. And I'm like, Hey, this isn't a fad. This isn't a trend. This is a religion. This is our faith. This is our way of life. And so a lot of why I've got into these workshops and this teaching is because I want to be a Hindu voice and an Indian voice and person representing us in this modern concept um, of, of, of Hindu philosophy. Um, and so with that in mind, I, um, I recently partnered with Think Right, which is um, the biggest meditation, leading meditation app in India. And I've done, um, I've taught seven days of visualization meditation, um, which will be releasing soon. Um, I've also uh, been writing um, I, uh, for Times of India and um, uh, a lot of other publications, Hinduism Today, which is a magazine based in the US. But I, I write a lot about um, Hindu philosophy. So um, I've been writing a lot. And then, um, and then I've been doing a... Um, a series of talks and lectures. And um, I did a really interesting conference in the US actually, which was called a spiritual directors conference, which was all Christians. I was the only Hindu, I think ever on the agenda. Um, and they, and it was all a majority white audience. And they were so embracing of karma yoga, bhakti yoga, jnana yoga, because they hadn't heard it in the terminology that Hindus use. And they were loving it. They were like, how do you spell that? And okay, so how does that come about? And it, and so that's kind of my work now. It's a mix of music, um, but also, I guess, giving, giving the message out. No, that is fantastic. And it's so important. And as you were kind of talking about uh, yoga and, and kind of taking it back to its roots, it felt like you had looked at our website because we actually had a take back yoga campaign that we had launched a couple of years ago 
because of exactly what you said, right? This idea of not necessarily ownership, but acknowledgement that what you have taken here and, you know, has become this very commercialized industry now actually has its roots in Hinduism um, and has been practiced for thousands of years. And most of us have grown up with it, right? You know, we didn't, we didn't really like go to a yoga studio and get on a mat and do it. We just did a little asana at home and we did our pranayama and we did our japa and all of that, Um, you know? And so it's, it's so important for Hindus and for even for Indian Hindus to get involved in this area. You know, my yoga teacher is a white male. His name is Eddie Stern and he is fantastic. Um, And he can like out chant any Hindu that I know. Um, He's like, Hindu, but you know, he's a Hindu, um, you know, he used to run a Ganesh temple, uh, here in Manhattan. And, um, you know, so I got very lucky in that I found somebody who was preserving it and teaching yoga in a very authentic manner, like the way he learned from his guru and he, he embraced, um, you know, he embraced kind of, Hinduism and yoga with all its complexities and, you know, kind of the paradoxes within it. Um, you know, it's a totally different mindset from some of the Abrahamic traditions, right? I mean, Hinduism is based on, it's based on discussion. It's based on, you know, arguments. Um, it's based on having different viewpoints, right. But still being able to come together. And I don't think that that's always so easy for folks to grasp when you have been exposed to it. And so it becomes very easy to just pick and choose like, things like this, you know, karma, the, you know, whatever you do comes back, comes, comes around sort of thing and just pick and choose these little topics and, and distill them into like very easy, short phrases that people can just grasp onto. But yeah, you're right. There's no recognition of where it came from and, and it leaves a lot behind. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's about educating young Hindus, right? Because a Hindu guy in Manhattan, um, you, someone else asks him, Hey, what's Hinduism about? Um, and they're like, Oh, you know, don't really know. And the person's like, Oh, it's a religion with lots of gods. Actually, no, we only believe in one God, but anyway, it's a religion with lots of gods. That same person is probably going to yoga, might be doing pranayam, has no clue that that is Hinduism, right? And that, you know, that's a little, I find that a little bit frustrating. And um, I remember in, uh, you know, I lived in New York for five years and I'll be moving back to New York. And uh, I went to a Garba and it was called Garba in the City or something like that. And I went to the Garba and it was Navratri season and um, right in the middle of Navratri. And I said, hey, where's the art be? Like, where, where is Mataji in the middle and where's the art be? Like, yeah. we're not doing Garba around it. And they were like, no, we're not having an art be. And I said, well, how can you have a Garba without an art be? And they were like, well, we want it to be accessible to everyone. It's a cultural Garba. I'm like, there's no such thing as a cultural Garba. Garba is a hit. It's like, it's like telling someone that we're going to celebrate Christmas in the church, but hey, we're going to take Christ off the altar because we want Jews and Hindus and Muslims to feel happy coming in. A a Christian would never do that. A church would never do that, right? But why do Hindus feel the need to remove Hinduism 
or, you know, the core of prayer out of something just to make it accessible. And so I wrote this article about it and then it, and then it closed down. <laughs> so I, I, feel like, I feel like there, there are some city Hindus who really dislike me, <laughs> which wasn't my point. But my point was like, I, I think you, you would find this funny. The, the article that I wrote for Hinduism today was called God is no longer invited to his party. Oh, because title. <laughs> like that's what it felt like it's like you took you took mataji out of the garba which is meant to be about her yeah. <laughs> it's so strange um and so i i love what you're doing and and i love your organization and um that's why i really wanted to do this because i just thought it's so important and it's not about being dogmatic and it's not about <clears throat> hinduism is not about converting anybody as you know we don't believe in conversion and even if you study our scriptures, you'll see a, a path for the atheist. You'll see a path for the agnostic. You'll see a path for, um, you know, the one who believes in, believes in non-duality and the one who believes in duality. And there's a path for everyone. And so the idea is not to, to force anything, but the idea is to, to, is to, is to respect it and, um, you know, to, to give it that, um, the beauty of, of acknowledgement that it, that it so deserves um, and hopefully get yoga teachers pronouncing namaste at least correctly. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, within yoga, there's been uh, at least some yoga schools, this, this trend of just stripping the Sanskrit out altogether, right. Of, of not even wanting to learn the names of the poses and, you know, it's just triangle pose. We're not going to call it Trikonasana. It's just triangle pose. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't depress me, okay? The weather is bad enough in the UK. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night, okay? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the yoga, the yoga issue becomes a very, it becomes an interesting debate here. I don't know if you've followed any of what's happened um, on at the public school level here, but we know that, you know, just practicing asana alone has a lot of health benefits and it really benefits mm -hmm. children, particularly in terms of their ability to focus and concentrate. And, you know, there's this, you you know, rampant thing of diagnosing kids with ADHD all the time, even though they're probably just kids. Um, but, you know, yoga helps with all these things. It helps with blood pressure. It helps with a myriad of health issues, uh, at least at least even just asana. Right. So one of our points is that just asana is it's, it's asana. It's not yoga. Right. It, it doesn't have a goal of yoga. And so the debate has been because the terminology has gotten all messed up about can you bring yoga into public schools um, and can you strip it of the Hinduism or are you going to be converting all these kids to Hinduism? And so there was a, a debate that happened in Alabama, um, which, as you know, is a very conservative um, state. And um, they had gotten really close to be bringing at least an asana program into the schools. And then there was too many Christian conservatives who were very fearful of Hinduism um, and it got shut down. And so, <laughs> you know, Hinduism is just, it's in this very interesting place where, like you said, we don't convert, we don't require you to be Hindu in order to practice, um, you know, any of our rituals, yoga, anything. Um, but they have benefits, whether you call yourself Hindu or not. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's this idea of openness that I think is just folks can't grasp it. You know, when you're in a exclusivist tradition versus one that's inclusivist, I think it becomes very challenging to wrap your mindset around that. Yeah. 
Hey, you're, you're right. I just, you know, I do think what would happen, what would have happened if this had happened in any other faith, right? I, I feel like it would have been handled so differently, but because of the openness of Hindu of, of Hinduism and Hindus in general, you know, the reason why British, British Hindus have, um, have amalgamated so well into society in the UK is because the British Hindu will have a Christmas tree and they'll be like, happy Hanukkah. And they'll also celebrate Diwali and they'll share their Diwali sweets with the person next door and celebrate it with them. Right. It, we embrace everything. We accept everything. And so where, you know, where, and I don't think a line necessarily needs to be drawn, but I do I think someone needs to fight against Hinduism being stripped out of it. I, I do firmly believe that because, well, I, I, I don't know. I just feel, I just it hurts my feelings. <laughs> I just find it really frustrating. And also it feeds into ignorance, yes. right? And it feeds into ignorance. It commercializes something to an extent that, is unholy. Um, and, and that's not the point, right? <laughs> that's not the point. Um, so yeah, you know, and it also, yeah. when, when that happens, it has kind of a trickle down effect. One of the things that we've gotten involved with is how Hindu Hinduism is presented in textbooks here in the U S and when you strip out, you know, when you call yoga, yoga is you could know, quote unquote universal, not Hindu. Um, you take that out of Hinduism. When you take out the philosophy from Hinduism and, and all you leave behind are rituals that have no meaning behind them. You know, what, what are kids learning or what are they hearing about Hinduism? They're hearing that, you know, it has a caste system. They're hearing that it has, you know, lots of gods, um, that it has lots of rituals and maybe it has this karma theory, right? I mean, you're taking away all the beauty of the philosophy because that philosophy, yes, is universal, but it is, it is Hinduism. And when you take it out, you just leave like this empty void and that's what gets presented to kids. And it's, you know, it's tough being, being, growing up Hindu in America when you're going through social studies or world history and these are the textbooks and this is what they're saying about your faith. You're like the kid who wants to cower down in the back because you're like, this is not the Hinduism I, I, I'm i growing up with at home, but this is what's yeah. being presented. So there's a lot of misinformation about it. Yeah, I, I don't think you can strip yoga away from Hinduism. I, I think that's completely unfair. Yeah. I mean, just look at the word. Like, where does the word come from? It comes from Sanskrit. It comes from the Yoga Sutras. It comes from the Vedas or it comes from Vedanta. Like, it's right there. It comes from Mahadev, the ultimate yogi, Lord Shiva. Like, how, how do you strip it away? I just, I, I don't understand it. And, and as much as I, I do love, I did love hot yoga in, in New York, but I, I remember going to this, like, I think it was like hip hop yoga or it was like yoga to hip hop music or R&B or something like that. And I felt I got the concept because it's nice listening to music that you're into and doing yoga. But then part of it also just worried me. Part of it concerned me because I was like, this is a spiritual practice. It's actually a religious practice for Hindus. Um, would you see this happening in other faiths? Would you see someone praying five times a day, listening to Eminem, but doing like the Muslim like ritual of prayer? Like, can you imagine what would happen? 
So you, you need to do something for me. You need to change the textbooks. You need to. We're working at it. Yeah, I'm relying on you. Most, I, I would say the most um, challenging part of it is not not the external folks, but within the community. You know, the folks within the community who want to go out and say yoga is, you know, is not Hinduism. It's universal. And you just look at them (laughs) at that point. You're like, I don't even know what to say to you because you're Hindu. I mean, and you just want to not acknowledge it's just, it's, it's frustrating sometimes. And, you know, I think it's all down to sort of lack of education, awareness, and also perhaps too much. And I, 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 and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I have noticed a slight difference between American Hindus and British Hindus. And a lot of American Hindus I've met, present company completely excluded, but a lot of, a lot of that I've met, they've, they've tended to try and become so Americanized that it's almost, you know, they really sacrifice their, their heritage and they really separate themselves from it. Whereas I don't see that as much with British Hindus. And I don't know if that's because we're sort of three generations on here. We're, we're closer in proximity to India. Um, we're a much smaller country and there are a lot more Indians around, right? We're, we're, when you go walk down the street in the UK, you're likely to see an Indian. Whereas you walk down the street in the US, you're, you're not the first ethnic minority. You're like the fourth, <laughs> um, you know, smaller, less of you, I guess. Yeah. I, you know, I think, I, I think you're probably right on a number of fronts. I also think a lot of it just depends uh, in terms of where in the U.S. you are, you know, I know that when, for example, when my aunt migrated to from India to America, she ended up in Tennessee. There are not a lot of Indians or Hindus in Tennessee. And unfortunately, you know, her goal at that point, and I can understand where she's coming from, was to make sure her children fit in. Right. She didn't yeah. want them to be bullied. She didn't want them to, you know, be the other. And so they lost. Yeah. They lost a lot of their own culture and their religion and their heritage in that effort to fit in. But, you know, they were like the only Indian family there. So, you know, I think a lot of it really depends upon where folks, folks ended up. Um, But, you know, hopefully, you know, hopefully people are hearing things that HAF is saying that people like you are saying, you know, that there are, you know, really proud vocal Hindu spokesmen out there. Um, And, yeah. so proud of, of the tradition and the faith and, and where we come from um, and that it has so much to offer the world. Yeah. 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 And, and I, I think you're right. And I, you know, I also feel like, well, I know in the UK for sure, um, race, race and racism has played a massive issue into all of this for the, you know, for example, Indians try really, really hard to fit in, um, which we have done very well. But now, you know, if you have a white person singing pigeons, it's like, wow, look, they're amazing. I'm like, hey, I'm your I'm your people. I'm singing pigeons. Wow to me. <laughs> like, wow to your own kind. Like. Hindus don't necessarily, Indians don't necessarily promote one another. Yeah. But yeah. in order to, to 
but they glorify, you know, white supremacy, essentially. They're like, the white person does it. It's amazing. The Indian does it. It's like, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> and that narrative really needs to change. Yeah. I, I mean, I think then the old, the only way it will is if there are more people like you who are speaking up about it and, you know, who are doing something about it and producing and creating amazing things based on Hinduism uh, and, and getting yeah. it out there. You know, I, I have hope. <laughs> I have hope too. I have, I have hope. I know I, now I feel like anybody listening to this is going to be like, right, she just complained for 15 minutes. <laughs> but, um, but it's all in love. It's all in, it's all in love. And it's definitely not against any race or religion or anyone. It's more work that Hindus have to do themselves. It's on us. The onus is on us. It's not on anybody else. That's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org donate. And before you go, a quick message. The Hindu American Foundation proudly supports We Can Do This, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services nationwide COVID-19 and vaccine education campaign. Our community has been hit hard by COVID-19, and many of us need help in getting educated about how we can get vaccinated. Our organization is working hard to ensure our community has access to important information in our fight against COVID. Learn about COVID-19 vaccinations and get help scheduling your vaccination at vaccines.gov. We can do this.